this morning in Romans, in the third chapter. We'll finish up the third chapter and hopefully complete the fourth chapter this morning. And Paul has been uh, speaking about, uh, writing about, to the Roman church, this church he's never been to, these people he's never met. He wants to impart to them what God has given him to share with the body of Christ. He recognized that each one of us have gifts. We've been saved by the Lord Jesus. We've been given gifts by the Holy Spirit in order to bless the body of Christ, the church. And some gifts are more uh, seen than others. Uh, But the Lord has given every Christian a gift to build up the body of Christ, whether it's the gift of helps, the gift of hospitality, the gift of teaching, the gift of being able to sing songs and lead worship. God's gifted us all. And some of those gifts we wouldn't consider gifts that God's given to bless the church. Sometimes it's something as simple as being able to help somebody move or, you know, maybe you've got an abundance of something you can give to somebody else that doesn't have any. And that's how God blesses the church. And so Paul is really just using the gift God's given him, the gift of teaching. And though he can't go to those people, he can write to them. And he can't make a phone call. He can't send a telegraph. He can't send a telegram. He can't email them. He can't send Snapchat. He can write a letter. And so he finds someone to take this letter to the Roman church in order to impart to them wisdom about basically the basics of Christianity. It's kind of like the Magna Carta of Christianity. It's, it's this document that, that shares all these truths that we kind of easily pass over if we're not careful. And they help us to grow in our faith and to recognize what Jesus has really done for us. I think sometimes we, we brush over the things that the Lord has done and we forget where we came from. And so Paul writes them all out and he's writing to a group that's made up of Gentiles and Jews. Uh, the two no, main groups that were going on in Rome at the time. The Jews had gotten there during the time of the dispersion when there was great persecution in Jerusalem. They all spread out because their lives were being threatened. But when they went with them, they had the gospel truth in their in their lives, and there were many that left that did not know Jesus. They rejected him as the Messiah, and so they still needed to learn the things that Jesus was teaching while he was walking among them, but they rejected it. But then somewhere along the line, maybe a Christian or maybe somebody that was a Jewish Christian shared the faith with them. They got saved, and now there's this church that pops up in the middle of one of the most influential cities in Rome at that time, Rome itself, the very central part of the empire. And so Paul, knowing that this is a great place of influence for all of the areas surrounding it, says, hey, we need, to, we need to make sure that they know the basic tenets of the faith so that whatever they're teaching others will make this big influence on the rest of the empire. We think about you know, the leader of Rome at the time, Caesar, and he had great influence over the whole empire because he was in the capital. And so Paul always looked for these cities that were in major areas, you know, in, in our state, maybe it would be St. Louis or Kansas City. If there was, the gospel had never been spread here, God would send missionaries many times to those big influential cities so that as time goes on, the people that are affected in those cities would be sent to smaller cities and smaller cities until the fingers of the gospel have reached out to every part of the world, just like in our own body. Think about the human heart. It takes the blood that has the life in it and spreads it throughout the different parts of the body, the arms, the legs, the head, and it it pumps from one central location. Now, our blood life that comes from our spiritual 
walk with the Lord, it started with Jesus. And he is the very heartbeat of Christianity. It's to be Christ-like. And that blood, as it pumps through every vein and every place, it goes out and it spreads and it reaches other people. So the body of Christ is that. It's centered on Jesus. And so Paul wants to make sure that these Jewish and these Gentile Christians understand that it's all about Jesus. It's all about our belief in him. And he's going to talk about the, the difference between works and faith. And so he's been talking about that because there's a group that likes to measure up their works and try to earn God's favor. And he's going to give some examples today of people that they all trusted in, these people that have walked before them in the faith, like Abraham, who was what they considered the father of the faith. And then King David, who was a a king after God's own heart. These people would look back and say, look what David did. Look what Abraham did. He's going to say, okay, but let's look at those people and what their faith looked like. Was it a bunch of them stacking up their works or did they trust in the Lord? Was that the reason that they were accounted as righteous? And so Paul, when he, in the third chapter, he talked about in verse 20, he said, he said, therefore, he kind of came to a conclusion. He said, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. Justified means to be made righteous before God, to give a, a, a reason why God should accept me, you know, making you just as if you'd never sinned. And, and they were kind of in the mindset of, well, I didn't do this and I did do this, or I did mess up here, but I did way better over here. And we kind of tend to do that. We think, well, God's accepting me because I've done enough good stuff. I can kind of earn his favor. We, we can even be saved by grace. Being saved understanding that was all Jesus, and then after that we kind of forget it and start to measure ourselves up by what we've done good and what we've done bad. But then what you find out is that your joy can be stolen from you because you'll have a bad day. It's going to happen. And in that day, you're going to feel like God doesn't love me anymore. But what you have to do is trust in what God does is true. What he's done has been complete. When God looks down on me, he doesn't see my jacked up day. What he sees is Jesus covered that day too. And so it's, it's easy in the, the very beginning to go, hey, Jesus saved me, I'm good. But then to have a bad day and go, God's still good even though I'm not. And he's still cleansing me. He's still changing me from glory to glory. I'm not there yet, but when I see him face to face, I will be as he is. So to trust that when you got a bad day is, is kind of a harder thing. So we have a tendency on that bad day to go, well, I'll make up for it tomorrow and then God will be pleased with me. And what Paul's going to write here is that won't do it either. You have to go back to Jesus. You got to go back to the cross and say, Lord, I thank you that when you died, you said it is finished. It was all done right there. No, there's nothing that I can add to that. The book of Galatians talks about that. It says, you know, basically Jesus plus anything equals nothing, but Jesus alone saves. But when you try to add something, it corrupts it, and and then you're not saved by it. You're trusting in in two different things that kind of, they don't help each other. And so, because our our salvation is based on, on Him alone and nothing that we can add to it, because there's no deed, no good deed, no bunch of good deeds we can do to save ourselves, what He says there in verse 27 to this group is He says, If this is the case, where is boasting then? He says, it is excluded. 
To, to say, well, I'm of the faith, I'm of the circumcision, or I got baptized 27 years ago. God, God doesn't want to hear that. Because even if you did get baptized, even if you did decide in the Jewish mindset to be circumcised, you only did it because God told you to do it and gave you the faith to do it. It's all about Him. He says, where is boasting then, verse 27? It is excluded, it's not allowed. By what law have you been justified? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. He says, therefore, we conclude or we make the final statement that a man is justified or made righteous before God, made just as if you'd never screwed up, never. A man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, apart from works. I love that because um, if, if it was all about my works, I'd be in shari shape. But then he says in verse 29, Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. He says there in verse 31, Do we then make, the, make void the law through faith? He says, certainly not. We're not getting rid of the law. Jesus didn't abolish the law and say, well, it no longer matters. What he did was he fulfilled the law. You see, when Jesus came to live on this earth, when he was born of a woman, raised up in a household, when he lived his life, it's not like he just never sinned. He fulfilled the law. He fulfilled the Old Testament feasts. He went to Yom Kippur. He went to you know, the, the Passover. He, he did all the things that a good little Jewish boy would do. He was circumcised on the eighth day. He did all of those things. Not to be saved, but to fulfill all the things that you and I are supposed to do. These are the things that a person must do in order to hang with God. To be allowed in His presence. But Jesus came to do it so that we didn't have to. He says, certainly not, verse 31. We don't make void the law. Certainly not. On the contrary, what we do is we establish the law. Because God, when he created us, he created man for fellowship with him. Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the garden. And he gave them one thing. See, if God wants to fellowship with us and he makes us in his image, he gives us the ability to govern ourselves. In order to be able to govern ourselves and make choices, we have to have a choice. My question has always been, if God knew that if they ate of the fruit in the garden, then why did he put the fruit in the garden? He said, you can partake, you can eat of any of these trees in the garden, except for this one. He made it easy on them. He put that one tree in there. He said, on the day that you eat of that fruit, if you do, you will die. That's what he told them. What they didn't know was they were meant to live on forever. And so to go in there and eat that fruit would basically cause there to be a division between them and God. They'd sinned against God, which always brings division. It always puts up a wall between us and a holy God. And so when they're in the garden, they had this choice. So the reason he put that tree in there is because we, if we don't have a choice, it's not really love. We have to choose 
to obey God. We have to choose to disobey God. So Adam and Eve being the best of the best, if anyone was not going to sin, it would have been them. What did they do? They rebelled against God. They ate the fruit. So when they ate the fruit, it caused there to be a separation. Fellowship is broken between them and holy God. And so from that point on, God was basically putting together a rescue plan in order to restore the fellowship that was lost when Adam and Eve sinned. And so from that point on, God is starting to pursue us, to make a way so that we can be brought back into fellowship with God. But God is holy, and His law doesn't change. God, in making a way to restore us to fellowship with Him, had this law in mind, it's who He is, He didn't break the rules. In order to save you and I, He didn't just go around the rules, He followed them to the T. Jesus Christ living a holy life, following the law, He did that because God doesn't cheat His way to saving us. He doesn't make an easier way so He can follow it, even though we were supposed to follow it. He doesn't say, do as I say, not as I do. He says, be ye holy, because I'm holy. He's the old King James. But he said, be holy, because I am holy. If you're going to be in fellowship with me, if you're going to have a relationship with me, you have to come perfect. Because God can't be in the presence of sin. And so, in order to do that, he fulfilled the law through Jesus Christ, living a perfect life, dying in our place. And by that death, the blood being shed, he brought us back into fellowship with him. Our sins not accounted against us, but counted on Jesus, being punished on Jesus. And then us trusting in that punishment on Jesus, being our own, and then taking the life of Christ. And it's, it's, it's difficult, but it's simple. And so we're justified by faith in him. So he says there, certainly not. We, we don't make void the law through faith. Instead, on the contrary, what we do is we establish the law. It's God's righteous judgment. And I love that because he says, you know, in verse 19, he says, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God because the law of God was not to make someone righteous. It wasn't a checklist of do's and don'ts so you can be right. What it was, it was, it was a mirror for us to be able to look in and go, I am sinful. I need God to save me. I need him to cleanse me. And so there in verse uh, one of chapter four, he says, what then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? He says, for if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then he, he refers to Genesis there. He says, it says that, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Verse four, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. So Abraham was one who believed God and because he believed God and did what he said, it was accounted to him as righteousness. But it was his belief in God. Now, I love this because he says there in verse four, to him who works, 
to him who tries to earn salvation, if you were able to earn salvation, you fulfilled the law to the T, you got to be before the Lord and he would say, hey, you did great. I owe you salvation. But he says there, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but they're counted as debt. If you go to work, you work all day long, and at the end of the day, you walk up to the boss, the boss gives you a check. Is that grace? Did he give you something you didn't deserve? Or did he give you something that you deserved? Your paycheck is something that your employer owes you for what you did. So they're not doing you a favor, they're giving you what you earned. But God's salvation isn't something we can't earn. So it's grace. He's giving us something we don't deserve. Verse five, but on him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted to him for righteousness. But notice what it says there in verse five. It says to him who does not work, but believes on him, being Jesus, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. God justifies the (coughs) ungodly. It can happen no other way. He can't justify somebody that's already good on their own. So for anyone to come to faith in Jesus Christ and then to start boasting about it is contrary to what they've just received. It would be like somebody winning the lottery and then losing it all and then saying, oh my gosh, I worked so hard to get that money. No, they didn't. You won it. Now, of course, in the lottery, we pay for a ticket, so technically we deserve it because there's a contract written on the back. If you scratch off this and you scratch off that and you win, I mean, you you deserve it. So it's not like that at all. That's a horrible example. Don't listen to me. (laughs) But what he's saying there is, To him who does not work but believes in Jesus, there can be no boasting because God justifies the ungodly. If you've been justified by God's grace, if you've been saved by the blood of Jesus, it's because you started out ungodly. You started out dead in your sins and trespasses. Dead men can't raise themselves to life. They're dead. They can't get up and walk around. Our new life in Jesus is something that he gives. He raises us from the dead. I went to a hip-hop concert last Sunday. I know, I'm a big, I look like a big hip-hop fan, but I am at heart. I don't get into it a whole lot. But this guy, his name's Trip Lee. He's a, he's a Christian rapper. He's the real deal. Like all of his, all of his, his songs, they're, they're theologically sound. I mean, he loves the Word of God. He's a pastor down in Atlanta. Two and a half months ago, he moved down there to start a church in a place where nobody wants to start a church. But what he says in one of his songs, it's called Lazarus. He says, from now on, you can call me Lazarus. Of course, he joked. He said, somebody got on Twitter and goes, hey, how's it going, Lazarus? You know, but the point is, we're all Lazarus. We didn't start out like with just a limp in our game and then he healed our leg. If you're a Christian and you believe in what Jesus did on the cross, you started out just like Lazarus. You were in a tomb. You were as good as dead. Your sins separated you from God. There was no life in you. You were just playing your role. Sin overcame you all the time. But what happens is when Jesus shows up on the scene, there was somebody praying for you, just like Lazarus' friends were saying, Jesus, come, our friend has died. And Jesus showed up to the tomb. 
He was crying. He weeped because Lazarus was dead. He was a good friend of Jesus. And then what did Jesus say? He said, open up the tomb. And of course, Lazarus' friends are going, it's been a couple days. By now he stinketh. We don't want to open that thing. It's going to be bad. And sin is just like that. It's sick. It's stinky. It stains us. It, it condemns us for eternity. It's a stench to the Lord. And what the Lord did was he said, open that tomb. And then he called Lazarus from death to life. He said, arise, Lazarus, come out. And when he did, he still had the grave clothes on him. And the Lord, he said, remove the grave clothes. And they did. And he was alive. That's what's happened with you and I. We are just like Lazarus. God justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted to him for righteousness. And then he gives an example of someone's faith, someone who had faith, that was accounted to him for righteousness. And it was David. They all knew about King David. King David was the most godly king. It says David was a king after God's own heart. So in verse um, 6 it says, just as David. Now notice it says, on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just like David. Now, I don't know about you guys, but most of us, when we look at King David, we remember all of his faults. Maybe, I'll just say I do. I think of David, and I think he was an adulterer. He was a, you know, he, he was a murderous man. He, he murdered uh, the, the husband of Bathsheba to cover up his sin. He, he was what we would consider a, a criminal. We wouldn't want him living next door. He's a murderer. We would put him on the website. Hey, make sure you don't live next to this guy. You go on the little, you know, he, he was someone that was not known for being good. But remember what we read in verse 5. On him who justifies the ungodly. So even though King David didn't have the gospel that we have of Jesus, what he did have was a sacrificial system where he could confess his sin, he could go and offer an animal and be forgiven. And so just as David, an ungodly king, even though the scripture says that, God, or that David was a, a man after God's own heart, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. King David was a good king, but his works wouldn't save him either. And then he quotes from Psalm chapter 32, which is a psalm that David wrote around the same time that he wrote Psalm 51. He had been forgiven. He had confessed his sin in Psalm 51. And then in Psalm 32, we have this writing down of, of basically his feelings after he'd been forgiven. Verse 7, this is a quote from Psalm 32. It says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. He says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Blessed, the very basic rendering of it, if you translate it directly, the word blessed means, Oh, how happy. Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Oh, how happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Psalm 32 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Oh, how happy are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Oh, how happy is the man to whom the Lord 
does not impute sin. Impute is an accounting term, meaning to account it to you. If you have lawless deeds, and you haven't come through the blood of Jesus asking forgiveness, they're imputed to your account. You're not forgiven. They've stained your life. The Lord sees your account. He doesn't see righteousness. He sees He sees lawless deeds against him. But I love this because when he writes, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. When he writes that, he can't know that except he's a flawed man who's experienced that, oh, how happiness. King David came to the Lord by faith, offered a sacrifice, had his sins covered by the blood of a lamb, on the mercy seat there, and his, his sins were no longer accounted towards him. I love that because we have the same opportunity. We just don't have to go kill an animal. Jesus, the sacrifice, has already been given, and the Lord is the one who gave it. And so, verse 9, Paul writes, he says, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? See, we're still in this debate between those who come through the covenant law and have been circumcised, the Jews, and those who have not been circumcised, the Gentiles, or the, what the old King Jimmy calls the heathen, the person that's without God, without the law, without the prophets, without the testimony. For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness, right? Verse 10, how then was it accounted? Was it accounted while he was circumcised? or uncircumcised. Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision, which was a seal of the righteousness of faith, which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed or accounted to them also. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of faith, which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Okay, so I know that that's kind of, it's real technical language and it kind of gets all, if I'm reading it, I get confused. Because I'm like, he's talking in circles it seems like. But what he's saying is this. We just talked about how David recognized that blessed are those whose lawless deeds are are forgiven, whose sin is covered. He was a man who came to God by faith and God justifies the ungodly. So he says, also, Abraham, another example, someone who followed the faith, one who was accounted righteous because he believed God. But did God count him as righteous while he was circumcised? you know, the outward sign of following the law, or while he was uncircumcised, before he did any works, because they're going, hey, I'm circumcised, so God counts me as righteous. But what the Lord says is, okay, really, let's think about that, because you call Abraham the father of the faith, but God justified him, counted his belief in God to righteousness before he ever did any works. Abraham hadn't done anything yet, other than go, Lord, I trust you. I believe you. And I love that because when God came to Abraham, Abraham was a Gentile. Abraham was living in an idolatrous country. 
There was nothing good about Abraham except that he heard the voice of God, he believed it, and he took steps of faith. But before he ever took a step of faith, the Lord made a promise to him. So let's go there in Genesis chapter 17. The book of Romans I'm finding out is actually just an Old Testament reminder. The things that are done in the Old Testament, they all point to Christ. And what Paul's doing is he's saying, this is how it pointed to Christ. This is where the faith started. It hasn't changed. It's just that God, instead of having a temporary covering for sins, he's given Jesus who is an eternal covering for sins. So in Genesis 17, this is where God approached Abraham. Genesis 17.1 says this, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am Almighty God, walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. So God makes a promise. He says, walk before me and be blameless. He says, I will make my covenant or my promise between me and you. He didn't say, you need to promise something to me and I'll promise something to you, which is what typically they would do in a covenant. They would, they would kill an animal. They would walk between it. The two rulers would. And when they made that sacrifice and they walked between it, they would basically shake hands. Kind of, you know, we're blood brothers now. Shake hands in an oath. And they would say, if I don't fulfill my side of the oath, and if you don't fulfill your side of the oath, whoever doesn't, whoever breaks this covenant, will be just like this dead animal. We would just walk between. And so it was a very serious thing to make a promise. So what God says is he says to Abraham, he says, I will make my covenant between me and you. He doesn't say we will. He says, I will. And I love that because God doesn't break his promises and we oftentimes do. Then, verse 3, Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. Now that doesn't mean like Lucy when she trips over something, she falls on her face. What that means is Abraham laid down on the ground prostrate humbled before God and listened to him. I think sometimes we're wondering why doesn't the Lord speak to us and I think sometimes we forget. Sometimes we just need to approach him humbly and say, Lord, what do you have for me today? Abraham prostrated himself and what he's really doing is he's, he's worshiping him. He's saying, Lord, you are God and I'm a sinful man. But notice when he's worshiping, the Lord speaks to him. He says, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, which actually just means father of nations. Not just nation, not just a family, but nations. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger, all the land of Canaan. Because Abraham was in that land when he gave this promise to him. And this is going to be an everlasting possession and I will be your descendants God. So the Lord says, I will be with you, Abraham. I will bless you. I will give you many descendants. 
And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant or my promise which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised and every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. So this is the promise that God made Abraham and this is the thing he told him to do, to be circumcised. But he gave him this promise before he had ever done anything. He gave him this promise of blessing before Abraham was ever circumcised. So what he's telling him is basically, you think that if you get circumcised, then God will bless you. And I'm here to tell you that Abraham was blessed by God. And as a result of that, Abraham became circumcised. It wasn't about Abraham's works. It was about him being blessed by the Lord. And as an act of worship, he responded in obedience. And that's how God does it. So there's no boasting. The reason that he reacted in obedience was because he recognized that he had been favored by God. So, verse 13 in Romans 4. He says, The promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but it was through the righteousness of faith. What we need to remember is that when Abraham started walking with God, the law that all the Jews boasted in, didn't come for another 400 years. 400 years. Abraham never had the law. What he had was a relationship with God. And God gave the law to the Israelites later on. You know, Abraham Abraham begot who? Isaac, the son of promise. Now, when this promise was made in Genesis 17, how old was Abraham? 99. This son hadn't come yet. So if God promised, I'm going to give you a son, Abraham's 99, his wife probably is really close to the same age. What do you think they're thinking? Okay, God, but I don't see it. But I trust you. And he circumcised his family, the the males, and he believed God and that was accounted to him for righteousness. What does it cost Abraham? I'll trust God. If he brings the kids, cool. Awesome. And if not, Well, he's going to because he promised. God always keeps his promises, remember? And so he says, um, verse 14, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is made of no effect because the law brings about wrath for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are were of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. That's what we read in Genesis 17. In the presence of him who believed, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations according to what was spoken. He said, so shall your descendants be. So, This promise that he actually speaks to him in Genesis 17, the Lord had told him 
many years before in Genesis 15. So turn with me to Genesis 15, verse 5. Well, verse 1. Start in verse 1. Genesis 15, verse 1. There had just been a big battle. Lot had been captured, Abraham's nephew. And when he was captured, Abraham grabbed a bunch of guys and they went to go rescue them. But after this took place, this battle in the land, after these things, verse 5, chapter 15, verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I'm the promise. I'm the one, I'm giving myself to you. I'm going to be in relationship with you, Abram. <laughs> but Abram said, look at his response. Lord God, what will you give me? <laughs> Isn't that great? Uh, we have kids, right? And, and we're saying, hey, I will always be there for you. And they're like, that's great. What's for dinner? You know, <laughs> we promise these things. But Abram was no different. He said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing that I go childless in the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. This was his servant. And then Abram said, look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. And that was Eleazar. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this one shall be your heir. Excuse me. This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And so... Then he brought him outside and said, look. And he basically had a Bible study with Abram, but they didn't have a Bible. And so he looked up to the sky. He said, Abram, look at the sky. Look at the stars. I love this because we see the Lord in creation. He says, look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. Now there's a group years ago that thought that they could count the stars. And every generation after that, they said, Okay, well, we thought there were this many stars, but now we're seeing that there's way more. And then there'd be another generation that would come in and go, well, wait, we've got better telescopes now. Let's try to count the stars. And so they start counting them. And every time they go to count them, they're finding that we can't count them all. And that's the point. God's saying to Abraham, count the stars if you can, and that's how many descendants I'm going to give you. And so as we look deeper and deeper into creation, we find out that it's not countable. And that's the point. He brought him outside, look now toward heaven, count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. So in Genesis 17, where he brings it up again, he still doesn't have any kids. He's 99 years old. But Abraham, even though he doesn't have kids, even though God promised, Abraham's still walking with the Lord, trusting that he who promised is faithful and will fill, fulfill all that he has said he will do. So there, he says in verse 17 of Romans 4, as it is written, I've made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God who gives life to the dead, calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope, in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. So this is talking about Abraham as an example of faith. God promised he would do something years past. And Abraham held on to that promise because he knew that every time before, God had been faithful. And so then when he came to him later and said, hey, next year when I come to you, you're going to have a son. And his wife laughed, right? 
She kind of giggled. She chuckled. She was inside. She was making a meal. And then God said, why did you, why did you laugh, Sarah? And I didn't laugh. You know, <laughs> she got caught. And basically, they named their child Laughter because of that incident. Isaac. Because that child brought great joy to them. You know, they had been barren for all those years. And the Lord said, I'm going to make what seems impossible happen. I'm going to give you a child, even though everything about this world says you will not be able to have children. And so God did that. But his belief in what God said he would do, that's what counted to him as righteousness. So verse 19. Not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, which was already dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb, he did not waver at the promise of God, giving glory to God. Excuse me. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strengthened in faith and he gave glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Let's end with verse 23. We're going to end the chapter. He says there, Now it was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him for righteousness, but also it was written for us. And when Paul writes us there, he's talking to his audience. He's talking to anybody that would read this. This story about Abraham trusting the Lord, it wasn't just written for Abraham. This playing out of God behind the scenes and, and man trying to learn to trust him, even though he can't see what he's supposed to trust in. It was not written for Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him as righteousness, but it was also written for us. Because when Abraham was promised something by God, he believed it. He didn't try to make it happen on his own. Although we find out in the story of Abraham and, I, and, and Sarah that they did try to make it happen on their own. What did they do? They said, you know what? What the world does is they take a handmaiden and they give it to the husband. And then she has children on the, the lap of the actual mom. And then they say, oh, well, that's, that's your kid because they were on your knees when you gave birth. That's the way the world does things. We try to help God out with our own ways of doing things. But what God said after that was, Ishmael, he'll be blessed because I said I would bless your descendants. But I'm going to give you a son through Sarah. So even Abraham, who failed at faith, <laughs> God made it right. Yeah, I love that because when I falter, I can look back as far as Abraham and go, I can repent. God can change this. My screw-ups aren't bigger than my God. And he says there in verse 24, It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because or in order so that we could be justified. So what he's saying there is that we will be made just in the sight of God if we will trust in Jesus. It's that simple. We don't have to add anything to that. We don't have to work certain works. We don't have to say certain things. We don't have to dress a certain way to please God. We need to trust that what God has said is true. And if we will believe what God has said is true, naturally what happens when we believe something, we follow it. Our actions imply a belief. And our belief is what it's accounted to us for righteousness. And so Paul is making sure that they understand that if we hold on to God's word and we trust it even when it seems impossible, just like Abraham did, and even when it seems like it can't save us 
like when David sinned against Bathsheba or against you know the Lord when he lay with Bathsheba, committed adultery, and killed a man to cover it, and then he confessed it, and the Lord his he forgave his sins, he covered them with blood, he forgave him and made him righteous. He was accounted righteous before God, a man who had murdered. And so in the same way, God, when we come to him through faith in Jesus, doesn't account our sins to us. I don't know about you guys, but that blows me away. But when we start to think that we can earn our salvation, what it does is it counts, it starts causing us to get prideful in our salvation. And then the person down the street who is looks to us worse off than we are, we're like, you know, you think you can be saved? You've done this, this, and this. And what the Lord's trying to show us is, of such were some of you. Turn to Galatians with me, and we'll close. It's Galatians, Ephesians. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. He says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. He says, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, then he will have rejoicing in himself alone, and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load." And he says there, in verse 19 of chapter 5, he says this. He says, The works of the flesh are evident, verse 19, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. I'll, I'll point out, that's mine. I have outbursts of wrath. I don't know about Anybody else that has that? Selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in the past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such there is no law, and those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. I love this because he, he reminds them of all the things that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I, this wasn't the passage I meant to go to because there's one. Where right after it lists all those things, it says, of such... Or some of you. That's how you started. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 5 probably. But my point is, is that we oftentimes are just like the Jews where we, we go, you know, I've been saved by the Lord. And we start to make a list of what makes us okay in God's sight. And he's saying, hey, this thing, the salvation that you received, it began in the spirit. Something that God did. You couldn't raise yourself. God did it for you. How can you try to perfect it in the flesh when God wants to continue it in the spirit. Just keep believing him. And that belief in him that changes your outward actions 
will it be accounted to you for righteousness. And then because you've walked that path yourself, you'll also be able to tell others who are unworthy, who are ungodly, just like you, you can be saved too. Look at me. I'm an example of God's grace. I'm not an example of somebody that earned it. And there's hope in that because everyone that's walking around without hope in Jesus has no hope. They don't have the strength to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and they know it. And so we have a message of hope that can raise them from the dead. Then they can be Lazarus with us. That which started out was dead and stinketh can be made alive and be made a sweet-smelling aroma before Christ. I love that because that's what we are. Father, thank you so much for taking our uh, bodies of flesh that were rotting and corrupted and stinketh and raising us to newness of life, giving us the blood of Christ to be our life. And Lord, I, I thank you that the blood of Christ is not only sufficient to save us, but it's also sufficient to wash us when we get in the muck and the mire that we so often go back to. Lord, help us not to be presumptuous or to start to think that you saved us because there was something good about us. Help us to remember that your salvation is for the ungodly. And to be ungodly is not good. But to recognize it and to do something about it just by trusting in you is the best that we can ever have. So Lord, thank you for saving us. May you help us to share this message with as many people as possible who are without hope and can't save themselves just like we. Lord, uh, save many in this valley. Use us to do it. Help us to present our bodies, our testimonies as living sacrifices. Help us to, to shout your praises. Help us to always be quick to tell people, God saved me because I was an unrighteous, filthy sinner. But he can save you too. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with the song.